Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world and thus making the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on Wiradjuri country and this podcast is brought to you from Turrbal and Yagara country. I'd like to recognise the first Australian's custodianship of this country for tens of thousands of years and their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to elders past, present and emerging. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. To the conscious horse people who came before me to lead the way. To those who stand beside me in our community now. And for those who will continue after we are long gone. I'd like to say thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that Lauren and I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up from as little as a cup of coffee a month you can help me keep this podcast going there are many tiers that you can choose from and if everyone who listens gave only five dollars a month it would make a massive positive difference to me there is a tier in there for small business subscription just like the one peter pap took up from peter and the herd this is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast episode Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery, equine communication and human and horse relationship building. Peter has had communication with my mare Gypsy who was the mare with me in the podcast picture and he was spot on about everything in there and he helped me a lot so I can highly recommend his work personally. Peter has also helped some of the listeners of this podcast, all of those who speak very highly of his work. You can contact Peter by looking him up on Facebook under Peter and the Herd or you can go to the show notes and follow the links there. A huge shout out to our new Patreon subscriber, Jennifer Morris. Thank you for joining the Patreon community. In this episode, I spoke with Robin Hood. Robin is the sister of Linda Tellington-Jones, the creator of the Tellington T-Touch method. It's a form of bodywork. Robin and I talked about the Tellington Tea Touch method and how it came about in the first place, how it was actually created. And it's really amazing to hear how someone was able to experience something for themselves and then go in and create their very form of bodywork to help horses that led on from what they learnt themselves. It's an extraordinary story. Robin is an amazing woman and horse person in her very own right. We spoke about so many topics in the horse world, including how we as women need to advocate for our horses and to really be in our power and what that looks like and sounds like and translates to with our horses. We also talked about how to choose a fair trainer of any kind. We covered so many different things. We talked about their words matching their actions and Robin suggested we look at what they do when what they are doing doesn't work. There's really interesting insights and things to think about. We even talked about why having water available for your horse during any training or bodywork session is really important for both you and your horse. So as you can probably tell, this is a really rich conversation that I enjoyed immensely. I've put a couple of links in the show notes, but there are so many different pages and groups on Facebook around the Tellington Team Touch method that I suggest if you want to follow them, 
that you put Tellington T-Touch into the search bar of Facebook and find the one that's in your country or even local area. As Robin says in the interview, there are a lot. So head on over there after you've listened and you'll find out more about what's happening in your own area. But for now, kick back and enjoy the wonderful and engaging Robin Hood. Here is Robin. Robin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. Could you please tell me first a little bit about what it is that you do? <laughs> That's the $64,000 question. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it truly is. So I, uh, Linda Tellington Jones is my sister and I teach the Tellington method or it, for a long time it was known as team Tellington touch equine awareness method. Uh, and we started doing this in 1975. So uh, actually a very long time. And I, until COVID, I traveled around the world about half the time and taught people the method working with dogs and horses primarily. And it's a combination of teaching people about observation. That's really important part of what we do. There's a bodywork component, which is the part of the of the sort of method that people cl more, they think that's what it is, is just body work. We have some different tools that we use to help animals have a better idea of what we want. So for what we do, it's about showing them what we want rather than working with uh, reflex and, and teaching them to make, we want them to teach them to make better choices. We have groundwork we do that's more like Tai Chi than than anything that's particularly active and with the horses we also have tools that we use under saddle and showing people for instance how to ride uh, without a bridle and uh, we've done this for yeah since 1975. Wonderful god we've got we've literally got my lifetime to talk about the work that you've done that's it was a great year 1975. I came yeah. into the world. Yeah. There you go, listeners. Now you know how, how old I am. Um, so tell me how it all began. So you were there at the inception of everything. And did you grow up with horses? I'm assuming so. Yes. Yeah, so I, Linda's the oldest of six and I'm the second youngest. And I started riding before I could walk. And she would throw me on a horse and slap it on the button. It would canter into the yard and my mother would be having a fit because I was just three and it was fine. And then I, Linda went away. She got married and moved away. And when I was nine, I started going to her school. She had the first residential training schools for uh, instructor school in North America and I had the opportunity of from the time I was, yeah, from nine, I almost every summer I went and spent time at her school. And the most amazing thing was I had a horse at home that I, he was four when he, when I got him and I was nine. And he, it was amazing because every time I would come back from the summer of him not being ridden and me riding different horses, he was much better. <laughs> so it just wow. goes to show it's about us. It is about us, isn't it? Yeah, only every single time I've found. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. the other, it's at least 50% of the component, if not a little bit more. And, oh, yeah. and so your parents had horses or was it? Well, 
it's it's interesting. Linda started riding at the local sort of riding stable when she was about six. And I mean, Linda's 83 now and lives in Hawaii, but she rode her horse to school. That's kind of how old we are. I I didn't. Um, And so she started with that. And she used to tell stories that when her horse was bad, she would come home, like maybe her horse had run home from being tied up from school. She came home one day and she put clothes pegs on his ears. (laughs) (laughs) So we did have, uh, we always had animals in our lives and our parents treated animals with a lot of respect and respect, respect, you know, the definition of respect is I think quite misunderstood because one definition of respect is to look again or to see. And that's not really how it's defined in a lot of the horse world. So it's sort of interesting, but our parents really, really taught us about, you know, being kind and respectful to animals. And, you know, my father had a, he had a small dairy and he was actually a milkman. So he would, you know, milk the cows and deliver the milk to people. So we do have a sort of a farming kind of background, if you will, early, early on. I didn't live on the farm, but, but Linda did. Mm, beautiful. Good values to learn. I'd never heard that about respect before. That's a really interesting point. And so you started riding and what developed from there? Well, I actually, our whole family, I was thinking about, you know, was our family involved with horses? Back in the day, they had big horse shows. They had a class called Family Ride and you would go however many members of your family could ride you'd go in like a pair class only however many and we had seven in ours and I was two and a half I think when I went um in the first time so you had to ride abreast and you know my parents didn't ride off and neither did my uh my sort of next oldest brother but they just put us all on horses and off we went and so from there I as a junior I showed my horse and you know back then we and, and it's, maybe it's more like this in Australia than it is in most places in North America. We did everything with the same horse. You know, we, I, he went Western, he went English. I jumped him. He was a little half Arab. We did games. We did kind of everything. So I grew up, I grew up doing that and I did quite a bit of a competition with him. And then I was out of horses probably for about six months. And then I, Then I kind of got back into horses, went down and worked with Linda. And when, and then we started importing Icelandic horses in 1976. And wow, why was that? Well, you see, in 1975, there was a a race called the Great American Horse Race. And it went from, it was supposed to reenact the sort of old Pony Express, if you will. So they rode from New York to California. And Linda had been in Europe and had, really become sort of involved with Icelandic horses in 1972. And so she thought, wow, this would be a great way to introduce the horses to North America. And so I said, oh, that'd be fun to condition them. I cute little ponies and, you know, it sounds like a fun thing to do. So my husband and I were conditioned them. And then we went across partway with the ride. And I, after the ride, we ended up with I think five or six of the horses from the ride because they didn't take them back to Germany. And then I started importing horses from Iceland. And they're a beautiful horse. I have met one, uh, somebody you know here in Australia. Um, 
has one and they're a small breed but they're a strong breed and they have an extra gate don't they they actually have two extra gates they have a tolt which is sort of similar to a racker and they have a flying pace so it's like a standard bread but it's um it's not a it's not trained quite the same way that uh, the standard bread is and it's primarily used for racing mm. wonderful and what was your love of these horses you know i i had never met a horse they are we've had up to 200 horses here on our farm at any given time in the last over the last 40 some years and they they are a horse yes but they are they are quite i think that they're really quite special they've grown up in iceland without you know once a horse leaves iceland they can never go back because of disease they are they are treated it's very interesting the the culture of icelandic horses and how they're treated and i remember when i first started going to iceland we would have icelandic trainers come and it was it was actually quite interesting because yes they, they're men and they're quite matter of fact with the horses and they they do really love the horses in a sense and i i remember one of them got uh wait if you fall off it's you they would say my horse threw me away today which i thought was a great way to say it <laughs> and so but the interesting thing is they'd say well but if they throw you away you can never be mad at them because if they do that there's they'll never let you catch them again if they throw you away ah so clever as well <laughs> so i thought well that that was that was really an interesting sort of an interesting concept so uh, over the years i've imported hundreds of horses we're not really doing so much breeding or importing anymore but i still love the breed they they just have a character they're in some ways they're in some ways, they're like Brumbies, like in, there's just certain things about their character, but they don't have necessarily um, because they've ha had more domestication genetically. Mm. Yeah, they're a beautiful, beautiful little horse. So tell me what happened next? How did all the T-Touch come about? How did, how did, how did horsemanship evolve? Because T-Touch might not have been the first thing. How did it all unfold? Well, I was, of course, when I grew up, I grew up with Pony Club. I went through Pony Club. I taught Pony Club. And, and Linda at her school, they, they based their school on her first husband was a, uh, in the last class at West Point that used horses. And so it was quite a cavalry background. So we, I had a very, in a way, classical background with horses. And then they always believed that it was better to work with a few pounds of brain than a thousand pounds of muscle. So from very early on, the way that we started our horses was just calmly, we, we, didn't really start our horses until they were four. We might do a bit of ground driving from a halter and, you know, and just basic quiet handling. And then um, she, so that's kind of where all that started. The horses were started quietly. They used to run a, an, a column for, for Western horsemen for years. They had a column called Let's Go because they were also very involved with endurance riding. And when they wrote a column, that said that you could start a horse without them bucking. Western horsemen canceled their co their column, which I thought was really interesting. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so it was early on that, you know, we've always had this attitude with horses that it's just trying to find a way to work with them in a, not a dominance way, but really a reasonable way that, that showed horses what we wanted and taught them to make better choices. And then Linda in 19, the early seventies, she decided that she was tired of the things that people did to horses to win a ribbon. And she took the Feldenkrais training for humans. And that was really the background of the sort of the principles and philosophy of the Tellington method. That's a, that's a, um, a big step though, to go and learn one form of body work. Feldenkrais, um, I've only ever had it on myself and it's very gentle and, um, and it's a really lovely method to then go and create something completely new and different. Were you there for those stages and how they actually happened? I, I was, and I actually had an opportunity. That at that point, the Feldenkrais training, she took the last training with Moshe Feldenkrais, who was the developer, and I had the opportunity to to go to some of her classes. I was like, a you know, a, they needed student guinea pigs. So I actually uh, I just attended some as a, as a student, was fascinated by the work. It was a pretty natural step for Linda. Our grandfather was a... Um, a jockey and trainer in Russia before the revolution. And he had a gypsy that he worked with that, that showed him kinds of body work. So this was in the early 1900s. And he had a record that still stands today of having more wins than any other trainer at the Bitsa racetrack in Moscow. And he, what he would do is he would run his hands over the horse's body and he, the horse would tell him by the feeling of the body whether they were ready to race. And if they weren't, he didn't run them. So he had more wins. So it was actually quite clever. Wow. Yeah. And in 1965, Linda and her first husband had a research farm in California. They researched kelp and everyday wormer and all, all kinds of things. And they also wrote a book in 1963 called physical therapy for the athletic horse. And that, was went along with they were really instrumental in endurance riding and coming up with you know pulse and respiration values and they they ran quite a few um, rides early on and they wrote one of the first books on um, trail uh, endurance and competitive trail riding so it was actually a fairly natural step for Linda to kind of consider the physicality of the horse based on what she'd learned from our grandfather who then came back from Russia and, and worked with Linda in his later years. So not only were you taught to um, take into account the physicality of the horse, but you were taught to read a horse because if, if you're mm -hmm. learning just how to pop your hands over a horse and it tells you whether or not it's ready to race or whether or not it's okay. That's, um, that's something that almost can't be taught. Um, it's, it's something that's so innate. So it's, um, it's a double, double learning there of, of the energy straight away as, as a, alongside the physical comes the energetic. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Was that easy to learn? Well, you know, I think the thing with the, what Linda was interested in, and I was sort of there, I, I, Linda's always done things that were at least 20 years ahead of her time. And 
to be honest, at the very beginning, when I heard of these things that she was doing and she was demonstrating them at Equitana in Germany in the 70s and so on, I thought, oh, I wonder what kind of crazy thing she's come up with now in, in the nicest way. Yes. And, <laughs> and so when I, I went to Germany uh, several times for Equitana and when I first saw the work, I thought, oh, this makes such perfect sense. And they, the, her partner at the time was in the Feldenkrais training with her. And so the body work, Feldenkrais, as you've experienced it yourself, is it's not really a methodology as much as it is, as it is a sort of philosophy and a, a whole thing about that kind of somatic learning and movement and so on. And so she wanted to make it into a method that was teachable. And so she, that, that, and I was involved with that. And then they also wanted to take, take it into movement. And that's the piece of the horse world that for so many years was missing is people did lots of brilliant body work on horses. But if you then take them out and they're moving in the same posture that they were before, just like with people, you're going to go back to those same patterns. Yes. And so with the taking into account the awareness through movement exercises from the Feldenkrais work, is Linda started using lots of variations of pole work and the labyrinth and so on. And the idea was to have your horse move slowly and mindfully so that the balance and organization is better. And that at the time was just like crazy compared to what, you know, it was not really even considered in the horse world. Yeah, it's um, it's it's still barely considered now. No, um, no, present, that's true. present company and listeners excluded, of course. But I, I, yeah, it's um, it's still still all these years on. Um, that fascinates me. How did she believe that she could get a horse to move mindfully? So when you slow down movement, like the thing is, all of this was just experimental it was like well i wonder if and then you try it and then you observe the outcome and it it went against a lot of you know the principles that she had learned all through her life is that you know you just have to horses only learn through repetition and you know that kind of belief system but when moshe feldenkrais made a statement the first week of her training that she said changed her life and he made the statement that the nervous system has the possibility of learning in one lesson if it's done through non-habitual movement that causes no pain and is not a threat to the body. Ah. And she thought, wow, if that is true for people, then maybe it's true for horses as well. And that's really what drove her sort of interest in saying, well, if I, can I take this can I take this into, into horses? Mm, that's, I'm, uh, my mind is spinning at that one, at the possibilities. And, and also as to the type of person Linda was, to be so unbelievably ahead of her time in every way. Was she always an inquisitive person? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, her, her first husband was, was old enough to be her father and he was brilliant. I mean, the man was absolutely brilliant and, and, and an inventor. And so he also had this curiosity and that's what caused them to have this research farm. 
where they had about at the time like 3000 i think they had 3000 members which was a lot back in the 60s is- and they did things like they would send out surveys to their to their um the members and they would ask them things like this is how Linda actually developed a lot of the personality analysis that she did in her book, getting in touch with your horse. And, and that's, so it was through this, like looking at what people's experience was just testing things out, trying, you know, new things to see how they worked. And that was the, really the, the basis. So I, I think that's, we also come by, listen, our father was way ahead of his time in so many things. Just, you know, just curiosity. And I think having curiosity is such an important um, skill to have or interest to have, if you will. I think it's one of the, um, I, sh- I don't think, I, I know from the 80 plus people I've interviewed of horse trainers in the world that are that are doing amazing things with horses that's the one ingredient that they all have curiosity well why isn't the horse doing this why doesn't the horse like this I wonder what would happen if I did this so I completely agree that if we all become a little bit more curious that um, that we can really take leaps and bounds ahead and so how did it then turn into um, what was the what was the next step that Linda found in in uh, maybe the early late eighties, mid eighties, maybe early eighties. I don't really remember. She used to do a lot of work in Germany. She, when she went, this is actually how she found about the Feldenkrais work was when she was working with people in Germany. And uh, Ursula Bruns is a is a was a real pioneer in Germany in terms of looking at different ways of keeping horses other than the more traditional ways that were happening in Germany and. She had uh, Raken, which was a test center. And she said to Linda, she's a good friend, and she published a lot of books. And she said, look, Linda, it's really fine that you can do this. You are a skilled horse person. And that's the problem with lots of things. Skilled people can do things. She said, but can you teach this to other people? And if you can't teach this to other people, what's the use of it, really? And Linda thought, well, that's interesting. So she took 20, she took 20 students, and they were sort of like novice to, but they were not professional horse people. Some had quite a bit of experience. So she took eight of those and 20 horses. She took 20 of the kind of most challenging horses at the time they could find in Germany. And several of the horses, it was sort of their last stop. And they took, they did three weeks or two or three weeks with, within those groups. And 18 of the 20 horses within three to five weeks were completely rideable by all of those people who are pretty much novice. So she did a little bit of the body work, just enough that she could, you know, teach people how to put their hands on and, and just gently move the body. Nothing that was manipulative. It was very gentle, non-invasive. And then she did this mindful groundwork. So setting up a, a series of elements that horses would go through like calmly and quietly and be paying attention to their posture and so on. And, and from that came one of the, f- the first book that was written about the introduction to the Tellington method. That was the first of, I think, 20 books or something that have been written. And it, you know, it showed that she could totally teach it. And it, what was fascinating is we've even over the years have had people that just from the books have said they, they read the books, it made sense to them. And they went out and just followed the techniques that they were able to do, you know, make huge um, changes with their horses. 
And what change does it make? Is it is it based around your horse is in pain and we can stop the horse having pain or your horse isn't moving properly and we can make it move properly? So nothing that we do is ever intended to replace veterinary care. So it's about helping to reduce tension so that horses can learn in a different way. And it's, it's about looking beyond the behavior because we consider that the behavior is just a form of communication. And if we, I mean, we all know that if you are a super skilled horse person, you have good timing, you have good use of your body and so on, most of them can get many horses to do what they want, you know, to comply. And we're just lucky horses are as compliant as they are actually in terms of, you know, that we can do what we do with them. And so it was, it was just when we take horses into new possibilities or new patterns, and this really comes from the Feldenkrais work, it helps to change their habits. So in order to change a habit, and it's not that habits are bad, we, we, we couldn't get up, you couldn't get up quickly in the morning to get done to what you need to do if you didn't have certain habits. The problem is habits really limit our choice. And so the, the idea in the Feldenkrais work, and this is really what she took from that, was in order to change a habit, you have to offer some novel experience. But the experience can't be too difficult. Otherwise, you go back into your default behavior. It has to be different enough to offer you something new, but within the range of ease for the horse. And, and that's really what we do. A lot of our exercises are incredibly simple, but they offer that choice. And they would have to be simple because you're looking to reduce tension. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's that that moment. God, she really was way ahead of her time, wasn't her? The the reduced mm. tension is a is a massive thing now. Well, still again, only in the <laughs> yeah. circles of probably people listening to this podcast, but it's so huge now. And here she, you know, you've been doing it for forty plus years. Wonderful. So what happened next? Well, after the sort of the first book, then we got a lot of things going with horses. So we started doing uh, workshops and offering. And at the time, there was very little offered in the way of, well, there were very few workshops that were ordered. There were offered. There were a few people. Um, uh, Tom Dorrance did things and Ray Hunt did workshops and, and so on. But there wasn't really anything that was about working with your horse on their body from the ground. It's so on this kind of complementary looking at the whole horse rather than just looking to help ch improve your skills to change, uh, change the behavior. And so that really was a, a big thing. And then we started to train other people around the world. She did a lot of uh, teaching in Germany. I, I do teach in Germany. Linda speaks German. I, I do not. I understand just enough to get myself in trouble. And um, so that was really the, you know, just building up to teaching it to people so that they could actually teach it to people. And then in the early 90s, we started working then with dogs because someone said, oh, well, if this works with horses. Does it work with dogs? And we said, well, I don't know, maybe. So just started to make the application. And now I've, I've worked with, oh, well, we've worked with obviously dogs, cats, snakes, uh, rabbits, pretty much every species, cows, elephants, 
um, you name it. Now, we don't do the groundwork, obviously, with a snake or with an elephant, but what we can do is help them have a better feeling in their body. And, and how we feel will be reflected in how we act. You know, if we feel tense, if we feel anxious, and so on, that makes a, a huge difference if we can reduce that anxiety. Mm. I'm just imagining, because I've seen the tea touch and it's, it's gentle movements. How does one do that on elephant skin? Well, actually, it's, if you think about this, our intention is to work uh, with the nervous system, but also at a cellular level. And one of the books that validated a lot for Linda of what she was doing was a book by a woman named Candace Pert, and it's called Molecules of Emotion. And in that book, she, she actually won a Nobel Prize for it. And what she did is she, she proved that emotions are held in the cells. And the interesting thing is, of course, as in all research is done, they're generally done with, some, with rats. And so for those people who think animals don't have emotions, here's the thing. You can't prove that they have emotions, you know, that emotions are held in the cells, do it with an animal, but say they have no emotion. So, and, and what, what Candace found was that you could, you could release the fear in the cells by doing light touch, light contact. So not deep work, but doing light contact. So that is one of the, T-touch is one of the modalities that falls into that. Most definitely. It's, my mind boggles. So it was, it was a case of trial and error. It was a case of if I touch the horse here and move in this way, then it works. And if I do it this way, then it doesn't work. Is that literally how it was created in the end? After she's obviously studied Feldenkrais, studied, you know, there's an enormous amount of information she's got in. It's really, it's such a non-grote method. It's like there isn't, it's about finding out what the animal says is the starting point. And that's also where it kind of varies from, you know, some modalities is we're looking through observation and through really mindful contact with them and pausing to give them feet, let them give us feedback to say, you know, what was that experience and to, and to integrate the experience to, um, so that it was like, oh yeah, that's okay. That, that's okay. So it isn't starting. I start in one part. So if, for instance, this again came from Moshe, if you have a problem in your left toe, your left big toe, you might start working on a human in their right shoulder. So unlike, you know, so often as humans, we want to go, well, here I see, where's the problem and I'm going to fix it. And if we consider that the whole body is integrated, we would start, we, we would say maybe the horse can't be touched around the mouth or the head or they're reactive in some way. We would maybe go to the tail and then work our way back towards, say, the front. And it makes people pay more attention to what they're doing rather than just say, I'm going to fix you, horse. Mm, yeah, it's a beautiful way to be. And it, in so many ways, it, it deepens everything with the horse. Just being able to look at the horse in a different way changes your connection with it. 100%. And that is the thing that I would say that if nothing else, that most people will say, 
my relationship with my animal has changed. And that's the, for us, that's like really so important because I think so often animals are misunderstood. So are people, but it's, it's so easy for us to, to judge what the, what the animal is doing. And, and to, we want people to really look beyond the behavior. And in my experience, and I've worked with thousands of horses, I have to say that there is always a reason for behavior that goes beyond just, oh, the horse is misbehaving. And, you know, I'm a human and, and there have certainly been times when I've worked with a horse and done lots of different things. And I thought, well, you know, you know, maybe this one just doesn't want to cooperate. You know, maybe this one is just that one that's just, you know, whatever. Every time that I've thought that, whether it be a dog, a horse, a cat, whatever, when when they've people have been able to kind of get to that root, they found that there was such a good reason for the behavior that it was a miracle that they could do as much as they could. Mm, wow. Yeah. I'm just thinking about a friend's horse at the moment. Um, what really interests me in this as well is when you have to step back and observe and listen to the horse, that's where the human part comes into it as well because you're having to be so present. Absolutely. And you have to consider what part, like what does what the horse is doing trigger in you? And, and that is so interesting because if we have fear, for instance, then, uh, then an animal's behavior will really trigger something in us. And so we have to also be able to stand up back and go, wow, first of all, I can't take this personally, but what is happening in me that is causing this response based on what, what the horse is doing? And so it's a huge learning for for us as as humans as well and that's something that i the feedback that i've gotten from from numerous people i had one person who said she's a, an author and she'd written a lot of self-help books and she said you know i've gone through 20 years of therapy and i learned more about myself in the last five days than i've learned in 20 years yeah I used to do equine assisted therapy and the horses have a way of delivering it to you that you can't hide from it, but they hand it to you in such a gentle way. I found that a lot. I was like, everyone would say, you know, I just got more out of all the years mm. of therapy in one session. And I'm like, they just deliver it to you. They know how to deliver it in the right way at the right time that your body can, can actually accept it and, and you can shift it. So they're extraordinary in that way. Has a horse's um, pain and behavior ever been shifted from the human awareness alone, or is there always something in the horse from your experience? Sorry, I'm not, I don't quite understand. So if a horse is having um, the behaviors, they're having big and, um, you know, sometimes dangerous behaviors, is that something inside the horse or could the human shift something in themselves? Is it about the connection between the two? Or is it definitely about the horse? Well, I think it's about the positions, A, that we put horses in. So I think that I, I, I don't, I actually don't really like it when um, horses are blamed, but nor do I like it actually when people are blamed. Do you know how sometimes people say, oh, it's yeah. always the human fault. I, I, I don't find Blind that to be actually helpful. No, yeah. no, absolutely. And so I would say that, that certainly 
what we do with our bodies, like how we interact. And I don't mean about being a, you know, dominant or bringing necessarily even bringing your energy up. I, I try to teach people about being neutral mm-hmm. and being neutral is about being non-threatening, being really present. But in order to do that, you have to have the skills to do it. And, you know, we see so many people who are pretty new to horses coming into the horse world and they're told to do A, B, C, D, and, and it either works or it doesn't. You, it's so much as that's taught is kind of elusive in a way. And what we want to do is teach people really practical things like, you know, we use what we call a wand rather than a whip. It's a stiff dressage whip. It's white. We use, teach people to just be able to stroke their horses and make a connection with them. How you do that, the amount of pressure that you put on it, the, the timing that you do, all of those things will have a, create a, a huge influence on how the horse responds to it. So there are things that I think are really teachable because I've taught them for the last nearly 40 years is to, to people to be able to change some little things that they do to help make them more effective with their horses. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much, um, you know, you call it a wand. It's the intention, it's the energy, it's everything in your body that that you're actually transferring through the wand. A wand is probably the best description I've heard um, because a whip has a different um, picture in your head. But if you believe you're holding a wand, it means all of your intention is going through this. My son, I have a son who is seven and he is just getting into Harry Potter and he will he will grab a little wand and he will do magic at me. And I say, my darling, you just put a curse on me. Can you take it off now, please? And he <laughs> will just laugh at me. And I'm like, no, no, there's intention that goes into that little stick that you're holding. And if we all see the whip as a wand, then my goodness, that in, in itself could be a massive change in the horse world. Yeah, there's no question. and and. It, I mean, it depends on lots of things like the weight of it, how whippy it is, so that it, whether it's stingy or not. And we had a little acronym that came out of one of the the videos that we did, and it's it, it's why we got called the Touch of Magic. And the magic stands for more awareness gains interspecies connection. And and that's what I've sees happen sometimes. And the interesting thing about sort of we use a white or we call it a stick when you're riding or rather than necessarily a wand. It depends on who we're working with. But um, in, in 4-H here, when they're working with cattle, they use a white cane and they stroke the legs of the cows with a white cane to, uh, to, to help them stand up better. And, and it's, there's something about, there's something about white that's soothing to the aura. If that's the direction that you come from, it also is different because as you say, if you say to someone stroke your horse gently with this whip, it doesn't really compute in their brain. Um, when you change the color other than in the snow, it is easier to find them and it's slightly different for the horses. Mm. Yes, slightly different for the horses and different for the humans as well because it's not giving the traditional thought and and things in your head. I think it's a wonderful thing. Biting bugs are a pain for you and your horse. If you'd like some natural and ethically made relief for your horse, made by me, then head on over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and grab some of the natural horse spray. There are two blends. 
The Kiowa blend may assist in keeping insects off your horse. The Gypsy blend was formulated to assist in repelling insects and also supporting the healing of Queensland itch and other wounds on your horse. If you head on over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and use the code COMEALONGFORTHERIDE, all one word lowercase, then you will receive 15% off your order. Get your horse some relief now. It evolved a lot beyond groundwork as well, though, didn't it? It's centred riding. Well, centred riding is not um, part of T-Touch. I've been involved with uh, centred riding since, well, I took a course with Sally in, I think, 19. I saw that on your website. Yeah. Well, we, do, we also do connected riding, and we really, it's very uh, complementary, that, that sort of approach to, um, approach to riding. What Linda did mostly, because she really came from this uh, cavalry background, which is mostly about uh, what she would call 33 points of the balance seat. So it's about, it's, it is about your own body organization. Centered riding comes more maybe from the Alexander technique. And Linda, I wouldn't say has taken a lot of Feldenkrais into the riding, but in, again, in, in, 19, in the 1960s it, at her school, she took a, a group of students around they traveled around North America promoting a group of Hungarians that Linda worked for a Countess Bessonier who had Hungarian horses. And they did demonstrations of riding bridleless, jumping with, there were four of them, two stallions, two mares, and they did jumping routines and so on. And this was, you know, in the sixties. So it was again, way, way ahead of her time. And so she has for many, many years taught people about you know, how to build the relationship and, and ride without a bridle. Now we have steps that we take people through though, so that they're safe and uh, not just, you know, hope for the best. And, and that's so that it's, it is really helpful for people maybe who want to try things, but they're not really so sure about, about how to do it. Mm. And how have you evolved through the years? Because you've done the, the a lot of different things from different people as well. Are you still um, are you still using the the, the base methods of T Touch, or are you, are you evolving it again? I would say that I have been over the years the the kind of logical part of this, if you will, and and Linda has a really strong uh, spiritual aspect to her, and sometimes early on again this is many many years ago it you know it could be sort of looked like oh is she kind of is she sort of off with the fairies now nowadays it's a lot more accepted by people yes. and um you know people re- recognize this sort of there's etheric way of doing things and so i was sort of that balance because linda would work strictly on this whatever was in the moment with the horse and i would say okay now you're doing this because sometimes you, if you just do something intuitively, you don't necessarily know what it is that you're doing that's making the difference. So I would sort of examine that and she'd say she was doing one thing and I, because I could, I was her sister, I would say, well, actually what I'm seeing is that you're doing, you know, ABC. And so from there, at first that was really hard for her and me. And, and then it became a really a, actually quite a good working model it, because I really, I really like to, I have to chunk things down into small pieces so that I really understand 
how you do, like say a particular movement, how you might vary it. So that's been my, my role in this is about sort of demystifying some of it, if you will. And, and I would say that I have, we do work in some ways in, in quite differently in some ways, but, but in very much parallel lines. Mm, yeah, what a great team, because without that ability to break it down and um, ground it almost, um, because the ethereal is, is, yeah, it can be lost very quickly as well. And without that ability to ground it, we may never have had it. We may never have been able to get it down on paper and bring it to books and, and teach it to the world. Yeah, I'm not sure sure about that, but I, I, I've appreciated being being a part of this. And I, I, I learn from every time I work with a person or with a horse or dog or whatever the species is, I, I learn something. And it's, it's really what drives me because I always think you can make something better. And I, I think that it's too easy to get trapped into what you know and never question what you know. And, and I think it's important to question what you know. I think you've just rounded up the entire horse world there is that um, is that's where the change is being made. And even though we've come such a long way, I still don't believe we're there yet. I don't even know where there is, but I just have every sense in my body says we're not there yet. There's more, there's more. Just keep, keep uh, diving in, keep being curious, keep evolving even more. I would agree with you a hundred percent. And I have a, a little uh, sort of five things that I ask people to consider when they're looking at their horse or when they're looking at anybody. And I say this broadly, anyone working with an animal. And the first thing that I ask them to do is to consider is, is what the person is saying and what they're doing the same thing. And, and I don't mean that people necessarily say things to fool you. They may not know what they're doing that's making the difference. The second thing is, um, if you were in the animal's position, what would you be learning? And because I've, I've taught in many countries that I don't speak the language and I can only observe, and there's many times that I observe someone doing something and I have no idea what they want the horse to do. And so from that, then the third one is, how does it feel to you in your gut and in your heart? And this is where you can watch videos on, you know, or YouTube and so on and shut the sound off and see is, does it actually make sense? Do the words actually follow the actions? Because the fourth one, which is the most important, and that is, could you do it? And could you do it means, could you physically do it? Could you emotionally do it? Like, do you have the timing and do you have the skills? And I think that's really important to consider when you're, you know, if you're, if you're practiced at something, you're, you're darn good at it or you should be. And then the fifth one, again, this is actually probably number one, and that is what do they do when what they're doing doesn't work? Mm. Because it's very easy to be nice when everything's going well. But when it's not going so well, you know, do they, well, let's just cowboy up and make it happen. Do they escalate the pressure? Do they escalate what they're doing? Could they stop? 
Could they just say, you know what? We both need a break. Could they completely go and change it to something else? And that's what I really encourage people to, to, to question what they themselves do, what other people do. Questioning is really healthy. And I often say to people, look, if there were no questions, there would be no answers, which sounds incredibly simplistic, but it's actually so true. And I really appreciate when people ask me questions and question what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime I've done anything, it's the one person that asks the 20 questions where you're like, oh my God, you know, you're asking so many questions, but they'll be your greatest advocate at the end of it because they are getting it. They're asking the questions to understand it in themselves. And then by the end, they're like, I've totally got this. And I always learn something from those people as well, because they challenge me to explain it, to understand it. And by the end of their questions, I'm, um, I'm even more clear about what it is that I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And I happen to be one of those annoying people too. (laughs) (laughs) I I ask a lot of questions. And what I say to people is, look, this is an honest question. I'm not trying to trick you because there are people who will kind of try to set you up. I I don't Uh, really care even if they are, but, but it's, you know, I'll say, this is a really honest question. I, 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 because I have to understand things before I can uh, wrap my head around them. And I, if I really even don't like something, I have to, I put it, re-put it through my sieve and I'll go, okay, what is it about whatever that is that I, makes me feel uncomfortable or I'm not really, you know, liking it. Do I have something that I think is better for me? That's, you know, that might be more effective. Is it, is it in, from my perspective, ethical for the horse? Uh, those things are, are really important to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And the um, yeah, anyone who turns up at my house to work with my horses does get twenty questions probably before mm-hmm. they even get to lay their hands on them. And and simply because you know you're about to touch something precious, can we talk? Can we talk about this? And um, and yeah, we we both walk away um, much better for it, I believe. And um, and both with a deeper understanding of each other, and and then the horse can rest in that too. Well, and you are the only one that will be an advocate for your horse. And that's the other thing I tell people is if you see something that you are not comfortable with, uh, and if, if, if I'm doing something, I'll say, listen, if there's something that I might, you, you might not be comfortable with this or someone else touching your horse or whatever it is, you need to advocate for your horse because no one else will. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's the most important lesson um, of my horse years that my horses have taught me. It's like, I'm it. I, if I hand it over, then is that not just a form of abuse? Is that not just a form of slavery here? Take my horse and do whatever. I would not like anyone to be doing that with me. So yeah, it's, it's a massive one for the horse world is, is as seemingly uneducated as we are compared to the professionals that turn up to work with Mm -hmm. our horse. Nobody knows our horse better than we do. No, no, they don't. And if we, we, if we want our horses to trust us, we certainly can't just like sort of give, give away all of our power, but it's one of the hardest things to do. It's one of the hardest things to say someone who is a professional and maybe, you know, and you're, you're risking maybe in some cases, unfortunately being laughed at or, or, you know, having, you know, being um, made fun of in some way. And I, I think that that's, that's a sad thing that I've seen sometimes in the horse world. And I think it's just, it's just from the fear of the person who is the, 
you know, the clinician or the trainer and their fear is of being wrong, of feeling stupid, of not being effective. So I really do believe that fear is what drives so much. And even in the horse world, if you're afraid of being hurt, that's when I see that people get more aggressive themselves. And, and it's, it's really, um, I, I think fear is a, is a huge driver. And so it takes a lot of courage to stand up, to stand up for your horse. Mm, yeah, absolutely. In, in absolutely every way. Um, but it's more common than you might think, especially for um, women who get back into horses or only get into horses late in life. Um, they feel like they just don't have the education and information that they need and they think everyone knows more than they do. And, um, and I've seen the result of that and it's, it's not pretty for the horse or the human, but when it, when they're able to really step into their power and understand what it is we've just talked about, then real change happens and it's beautiful. I've watched people fly once they've actually, um, stepped into themselves and owning up to being an advocate for their horse and moving forward. The change has been exceptional. Yeah. And it's creating that space for them to allow them to do that because it's really a, uh, it is a wonderful thing. Mm, absolutely. It's something I'm very passionate about. What have you learned about horses in all of these years? What have I learned about horses? I have learned that horses do the best they can with the situations that we put in them. And that, that some horses are so much more compliant than others. And are we willing to simply do what we do because we can or do can we kind of look beyond that so I think that's um, I, I think horses are our best teachers well actually so are other animals as well but horses are incredible teachers because they're so forgiving and this kind of sense of in a way like unconditional acceptance in in so many ways and they're they can be so honest if we really pay attention. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't going to do things at times that are that are that are difficult. But I th I find that like difficult for us as humans mm -hmm. is that if whatever the first lessons that horses have, and that's why I believe that even how we halter our horses to start with is really important, become default behaviors in horses very often and when they're under stress they just like humans we go back to what we learned first and i found that this sort of the the early calm quiet education is so important and they are amazing they're they're amazingly forgiving aren't they in the moment they can oh, yeah. you know yeah they can change so easily so what do you have going on at the moment and how has COVID changed the world? You said you were traveling the world half of the year. What changes <laughs> have you made? So what COVID has actually allowed me to do is do make some online courses, which is what I've been trying to do for the last four years, particularly with the, the dogs. And we have, a, we have a distance learning course that's been going on in Australia for a few years with uh, from one of our like really, really, really good teachers, Rebecca Booth. And so she's kind of helped create this distance learning program. And to that, what I'm doing is I'm adding it, making it into a lot more, lot more videos the way that I've done the other one. So I never would have been able to get 
what I've got an online if it hadn't been for forced staying home. And I've, I have not been home for this long in 30 years. It's like amazing. And, and I actually really love it. I, you know, I, I'm up every morning to feed the horses and we only have about 45 horses now and they all, they all live outside. So it's not, you know, it's not particularly complicated. And uh, so I, I actually really enjoy it. I, I tell you what I really miss about traveling. I, I miss, I love airplanes mm. <laughs> and, and I, I, I haven't had a day off really since this, since COVID has started because at least when I used to travel, I had the day off of traveling. Yeah. <laughs> I would, yes. I should be in Australia right now. Actually every year I've, at this point I've been in Australia for like two or two and a half months. So I do, um, I do miss that. I do love Australia. Whereabouts in Australia do you go to? Do you travel all around or one spot? Uh, a little, a little bit. I start, I sort of base myself in uh, around this sort of the Sydney area. And then I primarily sometimes I've been up to Brisbane a few times. I haven't done horses in Brisbane for years. Uh, and then I've, and then in Victoria. So I haven't really gone across the country. I just haven't had time with the, the schedule that I've had. Yeah. And sometimes it's easier for people to come to you once you've come this far. Right. Yeah. But then they can't bring their horses, which is, it's, it's hard and it's easy and it's, it's hard. Like it's nice when they can actually see the work affect a change in their horse, because sometimes the works look so simple that you think, oh, but this is just an easy horse. But so much of it is the approach that we take with the horse. And what do we do if they're not easy? You know, how do we change what we're doing? How, you know, that's, Mm. but they can still learn a tremendous amount. They don't have the emotional attachment when they don't have their own horse. True. And the old, old patterns and, and habits. So what is that online course? Well, the, the thing is most of our online courses right now are, are, we have a platform called learn.ttouch.ca and that is uh, where we have all of our online courses. And in the next couple of weeks, there'll be some horse courses coming up. And, and that's right now, they're primarily dog courses uh, and, a, and a few for humans. A few for humans. So T-Touch can be just for humans as well? Totally. It can totally be good for humans. Um, it's in fact, it's, it's sort of gone full circle with it, which is interesting because most work, most body work that's done on horses started on people. And <laughs> this work kind of started on horses, like it was adapted to, into horses because it's quite different than the Feldenkrais techniques and then went full circle around back to people. So for sure. And, and it's because the work is so light where where people are really amazed at it is when they feel it on themselves. And the, probably the closest modality to T-touch for most people would be cranial sacral therapy because it's that concept of flying below the radar of the nervous system, you know, rather than it's, it's, it's really keeping it uh, gentle. And yet the gentleness of it has an amazing effect and you can do this on yourself. And that's the, other part, Linda's been doing a lot of online courses teaching people that have had massive amounts of pain how they can actually use the T-Touch on themselves to help reduce pain. And it's been extremely, extremely helpful for people with long-term pain. Wow. And how deep does T-Touch go? So it, what about um, organs? And because if it's nervous system, it must, t- must touch quite deeply. 
Right. And that's the, that, that's the thing is that when you're working with the nervous system and also the concept of working at a cellular level is the idea is that every cell in the body knows its own function and the function of all other cells. And so we, when we can give it this quiet, calm information, it just helps our bodies to be the best that it can be. You know, we, we have this tendency that if something hurts, like on yourself, people will kind of massage it quite deeply. That's, you know, like, let's kind of get in there and try to make it better. And what we found is that when you can go really lightly, it, you don't feel as much as while it's being done, but you'll feel it. The pain goes away and you feel it for longer. Mm. Very, very interesting. And that makes almost more sense, doesn't it? Well, I think so. And I have, you know, I'm nearly 70. And so I have like, sometimes my fingers get a little bit gnarly and just, well, you know, they get a little bit stiff. And so I will really lightly do touches on my fingers and around my fingers. And while I'm doing it, I'm just thinking about this little like single circle and a quarter, moving the tissue very lightly. And I can't feel my fingers getting looser while I'm doing the touch. But every time I stop, my fingers have more flexibility. And I'm talking about 30 seconds to a minute. Mm. And when you're doing deep stuff, you're working on muscle. You're not necessarily in, in fascia. You're not working the nervous system as such, are you? Well, no, but the, I mean, the fa- fascia is actually not necessarily deep. Fascia and connective tissue are pretty connected and they are just right underneath the, the, you know, the tissue. So uh, in, you know, any sort of work that does light work actually will affect, if you're working with the nervous system, you will affect, you'll tell the, the nervous system everything what to do. So you can have a profound effect. It's just that you know, as humans, we've kind of have this attitude, no pain, no gain. Yes. And so we, we tend to do, if a little is good, a lot must be better as opposed to less is more. Mm. And, and that's a, it's a, it's a hard lesson as humans to learn that. It is, but it also applies to training as well. Training Every, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's that space. Here's a, a little um, tip that I don't know that many people use and that is when you're working with your your horses make sure that they have water available while you're working with them and pause at times especially with young horses but even older horses pause at times and really take them over and offer them a drink because when we're using our brain and we're in learning mode we use glucose and we need glucose water really helps to replenish that glucose. It's the same with humans. And that's why I encourage people in courses to drink a lot of water so that because they're probably using a lot of, you know, brain power. I've not ever heard that before. That's fantastic. I've been amazed, especially working with young horses. And we started a lot of young horses of having them be really okay. And then suddenly act really strangely, especially in certain areas. And then this one horse, was so clear he just needed water and he went he it was every time they were in the direction of where there was a water trough he acted up and it was like I just stopped and I thought wow why is that and then I saw the water and I took him over and he drank and drank and drank and I think he was super dehydrated actually and very aware in his body to be able to say I need water and I need it now Mm -hmm. 
What a gift. There you go. One horse changes the face of the training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For every other horse. It's extraordinary. So Robin, as we begin to wrap up, what is it that you, what else is it? Is there anything that you really want us to know? Hmm. Is there anything I want you to know? Well, I, 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 as I said earlier, I really want you to question what you do. Question, and you don't have to verbalize the questions, but just put it, just put it through to yourself. You can learn in every experience you have. And because I work with so many different species, I have to say that I do a lot of crossover learning from working with dogs and then working with horses. And there's many things that I've then applied from things I've learned with horses to dogs and, and vice versa. So ask yourself, is there, is there another way? Is how am, how am I feeling? Like how are you feeling in that moment about what you're doing? what could you change in you that would make a difference in the horse? And if you think about, if you pay 75% of the attention to what you're doing, and I mean how you're standing, what your posture is, your breathing, how you're doing something, and only 25% to the horse, you'll have a better lesson. So anytime something isn't working, if you're sitting on the horse and something isn't working, change something that you're doing. And I don't mean, you know, tighten the reins or loosen it. Well, you could loosen them, whatever. I mean, ah, listen, am I tight through my body? Am I, uh, am I holding somewhere? Could I pay attention to me? And I promise you that you'll have a change in your horse. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. And it's even, um, it's even, before you even get to your horse, if your horse is on the property, before you open the door to go to them, how am I in my body now? Or if you're on the drive to them, if you really consider yourself on the way there and really come back into your own body, you may find that things go differently as well. That's been my experience anyway. Absolutely. And if you are, if you're feeling like stressed in a situation, and this is, not sure how well this is going to work without seeing it, but Linda has a thing that she calls heart hugs. And it really, if you're familiar with the Heart Math Institute, it's about helping bring yourself into heart coherence. And when you're feeling really, really stressed, if you just put one hand on your chest and you take a breath in and exhale, and then you, you can put one, you can put like two hands, one hand over the other, and you simply move the tissue in approximately a circle and a quarter. And you start with a lift. So if it was the face of a clock, you'd start at six on the clock and move in either direction, whichever feels better to you, in a circle and a quarter. And a little pause at the end of that. And if you do that, if you're, when you're feeling stressed or before you go to work with your horse or in the, in the time that you're working and you're feeling a little bit, it's not working well, that will help you bring, come into heart coherence, which we also know helps bring the animals into heart coherence. And, and that's, is so important for our, our well-being and for their well-being as well. Mm. One last one, because it keeps popping into my head, fear. What happens when you, have you got something to do for humans when they bring fear to their horse or there's a relationship there that has created fear? That's when I think that what, if people can, really chunk it down. Like, I, I guess it would depend on the, the situation. So the number one need that has to be met 
by all beings is to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so the the first thing that I, I mean, sometimes people are really smart to be afraid. And they, I think that fear is something that is a, uh, it keeps us alive, right? Yeah. So, uh, so I don't, I don't think that fear is bad. I think that what you have to do is stand back a little bit and say, okay, if I'm afraid, what can I do to help myself feel safer? Because when you feel safer, you'll feel, you'll have less fear. And, and that's when we'll ask people to, you know, break down the situation, make things easy, go back to something that worked. Now, it may be that what you need to do is, you know, find someone who is a lot more experienced than you do and get there and get help from them for sure. You know, sometimes not every relationship with a, a horse and a person is the right one. And I, I think it's okay. I've had people, you know, explain a problem to me and I'll, you know, I'll say, are, are you enjoying yourself with the horse or is the horse enjoying it? What's the situation like? And they will, um, they'll, they, and, and sometimes they're just looking for permission that this might not work. And, yeah. you know, and it's having, as I say, sold like hundreds and hundreds of horses in over the, like one year we sold a hundred horses, but we have a suitability guarantee and I don't want horses to be in the wrong situation. And I don't, I, because it's not good for the horse or the person. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it, you know, we have the horses for life, but it's like, well, yes and no, it has to be the right horse. Uh, My two mares that I have now are absolutely for life, but I've had a gelding before and I knew he wasn't and that was okay. And then it's your responsibility, my responsibility to find the right person for him because I believe there was someone else out there. So yes, it's, you, you can't, you can't be so stuck and, um, in one in one mindset because it, it's just not true. It, it's different. It's like saying, "Yes, I have this boyfriend now when I'm you know, <laughs> 13, and I have to stick with him for life." Well, no, you evolve, but um, it's a little different for humans. But you've got to think about that with horses as well. If it's not working, sometimes sometimes it's just not the right match. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. And if you know, if neither of you were having fun, then. <sighs> What, what's, you know, what, what's the point? I, I mean, it's not fair. It's not fair to either. Now we have, you know, we have quite a few horses. Our horses are here, you know, even though we bred horses and we sold horses, I always, I had a rule that um, if I, most of the time horses would stay where they were. Like we had this 30 day suitability guarantee. I would let it go a little longer if I thought that it was a good match in the end. But occasionally it wasn't a good match. And I knew that the horses weren't happy and the people weren't happy. So the horses came back here and, and they just stay with us then for life. That's what they do. And, and they're, they're totally fine here. We have horses that were totally fine and they went to the situation that just didn't work for them and it, it wasn't okay. And they came back here and they were just like they were when they left. Mm. And so, you know, they are individual beings. They have feelings. And I, I can think it can be terrible for horses when they, I think horses can get ulcers and they can feel completely stressed when they move to a new situation. If it's, and they don't know the person, they don't know anything. So I, I, I think that we have to be kind when we, and give horses a chance. And if it's not the right horse and the, the right situation, then um, see, to, see if you can find the, the right situation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Robin, where can we find you? Well, we have a website, uh, www.ttouch.ca as in Canada. There is a, also a, the ttouch.com will take you to the, uh, the uh, website in the U.S., and we do actually have a website in Australia, and I think it's ttouchaustralia.com.au. I think that's okay. what it is. Beautiful. And we will um, link to those in the show notes. And are you on the socials? Oh, yeah. We have like, uh, uh, what do we have here? We have lots of them. Um, we have T-Touch Training Canada, I think we have Tellington T-Touch World. We have like way too many. We have a, we have a Facebook community. Uh, it's a subscription-based community that we have a library with that has all of the videos that we've ever done in it um, and so on. It's, uh, it's uh, T-Touch. I think it's just Tellington T-Touch Community is what it's called. Okay, wonderful. So we can, we can look you up and know where to find you. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. But, um, you know, mostly thank you so much for always being curious and being an advocate for the horse and this extraordinary work that you're bringing to the world. Well, thank you for having me. I, you know, I, I thank you for inviting me on this podcast because I appreciate what you're doing as well. And I think that that's the more people that can be out there that are advocating for horses and, and just offering people the thing. It's okay to be nice to your horse. You know, yeah. it's really okay. And you have to go with what feels really right for you. So I, I really appreciate and have really enjoyed my time with you. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.